Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Rorag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Dr Alison Van Enenen is a Cooperative Research Specialist in the field of Animal Genomics and Biotechnology at the University of California. Alison has a Bachelor of Agricultural Science and a Master of Animal Science and a PhD in Genetics. Alison has given over 700 presentations and is the recipient of many awards for her work. Determined to get the facts out there and understood, Alison is a passionate truth seeker who uses multitude of media to inform the general public about science and technology. In this episode, Alison explains the complexities and difficulties in the production of cultured meat. We already have a perfectly good system for producing meat, the cow. The rumen has magical superpower, taking inedible forage and turning it into product suitable for human consumption. Welcome to the Raw Rag podcast, Alison. Oh, pleasure to be here. <laughs> I learned a few years ago that it's um, not safe to let Alison take a photo of your dog because she had this <laughs> neat, neat way of introducing people. And uh, anyway, Max is still about Alison. You might be amazed to hear, but he's 14 and still going. Alison took a photo of Max one day, which meant that um, I might have been a candidate to be introduced by her at the conference at some stage. And she's got a rather neat way of introducing people with a photo of their dog. Today, we're going to talk about uh, cultured meat and... Um, Alison is going to help us get through um, this topic, which is causing some a little bit of stress, I suppose, in beef producers that um, we can make a product in a lab that competes in taste and texture and flavour and um, with our wonderful beef product. Yes, that's what you say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, there's a fair way to go there, actually, Tom. So, uh, yeah, we can certainly unpack that. Um, I don't know if you want me to yep. kind of start with what, what, what the heck we're even talking about. Is that probably Yeah, that would be a good way to, to go. So what, what is it? What is cultured meat? So, yeah, it's um, kind of the, 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 the darling of the venture tech industry at the moment. Um, and so basically the cultured meat is just to kind of distinguish it from um, another kind of popular term at the moment, which is um, the things like the Impossible Burger and the um, Beyond Burger. Those are basically um, plant-based protein, um, pea or, or soy, that have been kind of molded into a hamburger-looking creature that is different to cultured meat. Um, and so I just want to distinguish effectively veggie burgers from cultured meat because cultured meat actually is made from animal cells. So it's not a veg vegetable product. It's, a, it's an animal product, but it's growing cells in a bioreactor, which is just a great big hot bath, basically, um, that provides nutrients to the cells to enable them to grow. Um, and the idea is that you would 
uh, seed this incubator that's going to be full of a nutritious broth and the cells would multiply and then you would harvest those cells and package them into a meatball or a hamburger or whatever it is you'd like to grow um, and that this is going to be um, preferable to growing meat the old-fashioned way. Um, at least that's how the story pitch goes. Um, and I think uh, just looking at it and you know Tom that I'm a, a geneticist and so I have a molecular lab and so we actually grow cells in our lab um, for research purposes not to eat them um, and it's not <laughs> actually that trivial to grow uh, mammalian cells they're they're fickle <laughs> um, they need you know all their nutrients they need to be kept clean of any bacteria um, they need to have their their media changed every couple of days and they have a, um, a finite shelf life in other words they don't replicate uh, uncontrolled and so um, they can you know after 10 or 12 passages then they kind of stop growing um, and so there's quite a lot of things that would have to be sorted out to get effectively um, immortal lines that would grow very rapidly and they're going to need a lot of inputs they're going to need the culture media to be exactly right. They're going to need temperature to be at, you know, 37 or, or degrees Celsius body temperature, basically. They're going to have to have their wastes removed. You're going to have to be in a sterile environment, all of which is kind of pretty effectively provided by a cow right now, right? Yeah. So, um, and that's, I think, kind of the fundamental disconnect I see is that all of that is not going to be a free lunch. So you're going to have to provide all of that, and that's going to take energy. And that really, I think, is kind of the big uh, elephant in the room. So what, what's the energy load required to actually produce cultured meat? Well, Alison, you know, when, I know that when we're um, creating rations for cattle, um, the macro element, uh, nutrients that we require, fibre, protein and energy, just to really simplify it, the protein component of that is really expensive. It's the most expensive of the three. And... Um, really expensive products like that are expensive uh, financially and economically usually and i think protein is expensive environmentally if we require more how do we get protein um so that and and i feel like uh, the cultured meat argument is that we're getting something for nothing well i think it, it gets presented that way um without really an appreciation of, of actually what it might take to do that and i i mean i think that protein is expensive and um, there are different ways to, to address it. And I, I guess I don't necessarily see this as competing against beef. If you look at the world demand projections, I think we're going to need all hands on deck. Um, and so if this is uh, an approach that can produce a product that some people want and it can be done in a, in a sustainable way, then I don't think it's helpful to just demonize it. Yep. But at the same time, it's what I see, as with many things at the moment, is this dichotomous framing. Um, and that is, you know, the entire world's going to go to cultured meat or whatever, or, you know, everybody has to stop eating meat and, and you know, you have to have plant-based protein or whatever. And it's like, I have to pick a kingdom, really? So, yeah, <laughs> like, there's a bit of save it, the world with it too, isn't there? It, well, it's, yeah, it's just, it's like, why is everything being forced into this either or kind of instead of, yes and um and i find it uh rather frustrating and i think that in their zeal to sell this idea to venture capitalists that um the the tech silicon tech valley boys are are really not um doing a very fair job of explaining 
the pros and cons of of the of the system that they're suggesting um and i get very frustrated when i um see them say that you know this is going to take the place of 40% of the world's meat production in 10 years time when there's zero product on the market at the current time like that's a if you look at the numbers we're talking that's a huge 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 ask um and the system would have to be incredibly efficient to make that happen um and it's just it's not even been reduced to practice really at this stage as a few little pilot plants here and there but we're talking you know tons and tons and tons of meat that would have to be produced and um really the some of the more difficult aspects is is getting those immortalized cell lines and then also the growth factors that are involved with differentiating and 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 keeping those cells growing and i think that they're a very expensive part of of our culture system in my lab i know we use some really a, a, an ingredient called fetal bovine serum which as it sounds like is is derived from bovine fetuses in the slaughterhouse that has um magic components that help cells grow and it's really hard to actually replicate and get that to happen in the absence of these um animal based growth factors and so it's it's technically complicated and then i think more importantly is from an energy perspective keeping those vats hot um versus what is effectively a solar powered bioreactor that's known as the rumen right yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's what right. you're competing against and so i think that um that kind of is is it it is um you know the the beauty of a cow is that she can convert uh forage into to high quality protein and and she does it under the energy of a sun um so yeah look and that's always going to be hard i suppose to get onto the cow just for a moment to, um again some of these truths that are pushing um the commercialization of the um culture burger like 400 million's been raised um that's no mean feat to try and produce a product um in our cows um are sort of forgotten about their the the wonderful way that they convert um in many cases in Australia as you would know produce from country which is otherwise unable to be used for any food source um in the outback Australia where the rainfalls and uh, are varied and low it's not as if we take a cow out of the system and we replace it with a vegetable because it's not the case what do you think about how the rumen is placed um in producing food for humans so I mean, it it is a pretty neat machine isn't it Well it's I mean that's the cow's magic superpower and in fairness it's all ruminants I'm sorry sheep people but yeah. um you know that's that's its magic superpower is taking inedible forage and producing a high quality product um and that it, on land that is not otherwise suitable for human food production and that is it is its ecosystem niche um and is why ruminants are such a hugely important uh source of of food in the world um and i think that um there's often a lack of even understanding of you know why is a cow so inefficient at at producing you know product well look at what she's eating <laughs> you know you good yeah. luck throwing that stuff in your bioreactor right you're going to provide very very highly purified good quality what could otherwise be human edible food to these animal cells to produce this cultured beef i guess i would look at that and go well why not just eat the culture media yeah you you, <laughs> um, you see because- that in yeah feed conversion ratios comparing different livestock um and saying that beef are bad because they eat so much compared to kilos of beef they produce but what they eat in comparison to what a fish eats is just chalk and cheese um very 
uh, unfair sort of um, comparisons, I would have made, you know, that I believe. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just find it a, a, a kind of a, a, a too broad of a metric. So kilograms of feed, it's like, well, what sort of feed? Was that feed that could have otherwise been consumed by monogastrics? Is it feed that food that could have otherwise been consumed by humans? Is it waste things like almond hulls that we feed to our dairy cattle in, in California? So, you know, there, I think 86% of animal feed globally consumed is not edible by humans. So grass, forage, uh, leaves, etc. So take animals out of that system and 86% of what they're eating doesn't get eaten by humans. It just no longer produces any animal, any human food. So that would have to be replaced with something. Um, and so that um, lack of kind of appreciation for the, the valuable services that, that ruminants provide, I think, is uh, part of where the discourse is a bit off. Yeah. Okay. So... Um the um, the four hundred million dollar that's been raised um, obviously is going to be behind it, and we're going to see cultured meat come into the food chain at some stage. What hurdles do that does cultured meat have to get over before it becomes a retail product? There's a few technical hurdles it has to get through, as I mentioned. You know, getting a basically a vegetarian based. Um, broth for it to grow in um, and then getting it I think one of the biggest problems it's going to have is getting to where the cells can get to a suitable density in that broth to make it kind of cost effective to harvest it so you need them to be basically growing right next to each other and they don't tend to like to do that but let's just say they do reduce that to practice and they can now produce um, you know the cultured meat then it's going to have to come in at a price point that's at least a little bit competitive with the with the traditional product um, at the moment it's you know hundreds of orders of hundreds of magnitude more um, and then you're going to also have to have consumers that want to buy it um, and obviously you're going to have to go through the normal um, you know food safety evaluations so that um, same as cattle going through the processing plant have to be at least in the US, uh, they get certified by the, the USDA veterinarians. So something along those lines. And then people are going to want to have to say, yeah, I'm going to buy that. And, um, you know, it's kind of ironic to me. You hear a lot of, you know, I don't like factory farms. And it's like, this is the actual definition of a factory farm. Yeah. It's going to be in a factory. And so, um, you know, if, if for a, a populace that's been pushing for quite quote unquote natural products, um, they're going to have a little bit of, uh, I think, market uh, opposition there potentially from, from that segment of society. There'll be other tech nerds that think this is the best thing since sliced bread. And, you know, that's what we saw with um, like the Impossible Burger over here is a, um, that's one of the vegetable-based burgers and it includes a GMO uh, heme or, or iron product leg hemoglobin from soy that um, is, you would think would be the kiss of death because, you know, GMOs are bad. And that stuff, like, it flies off the shelves. And so, you know, consumers, what they say and what they'll actually buy is, is not yeah. always the same thing. And so I think, um, you know, we haven't got any product on the market at the moment. And, and it's been a con concept for, what, 15 years, I think, since Mark posted the first um, tasting. So it's, it's not – there's some pretty major technical hurdles that have to be uh, addressed for this product to become competitive. Yeah, look, and I think people won't be able to synthesize, eating a synthesized product or food um, that we didn't evolve on is probably something that's going to need some real scrutiny behind it by the USDA and um, health um, protocols, isn't it? 
Yeah, so I, I think in the in the US, the approach is that the FDA will be in charge of the product up until it's synthesized. And then after that, the food safety aspects will switch over to the USDA. So FDA would be in charge, for example, of good laboratory practices and the systems they're using to keep antibiotic or, excuse me, microbes out of the system. Because, of course, they won't be able to use antibiotics. And, and if you think about it, you know, what, what better medium for, for a bug to grow in than a nice juicy culture at 37 degrees Celsius. And so there'll have to be some really stringent um, protocols in place to prevent any type of um, bacterial, you know, entry into the system. Um, and uh, all of that is, is you know, expensive. And, and certainly there are mammalian cell culture systems that are used, for example, to produce recombinant proteins for therapeutic purposes, like um, there's a thing called Herceptin, that's a breast cancer treatment, but that's a hugely valuable product. And so you, you can do these things, but it's the price point and the volume and the amount that's, if you look at how much you know beef and, and meat we produce, um, that's where I think, you know, making this scalable uh, is is where it, it will be quite problematic, I think. And so I, I'm not 100% convinced it won't be much more than a, a kind of a boutique-y um, thing for basically urban um, urban dwellers with a lot of disposable income. I, I don't see it being a staple for um, uh, most people and, and certainly not at a price point that's going to be competitive with with traditional meat. Alison, what should we be doing as beef producers to um, make sure that we maintain a social licence with the environment? There's many things that we can do better with beef to reduce their um, methane output and perhaps environmental footprint. <laughs> what, are the, what are the some of the low-hanging things that we could do, or is it not a worry? You did ask a geneticist, so... <laughs> Yeah, go for it. Gee, Tom, I wonder what my this is, answer this is might your, This be. is your segue, so, segue into gene <laughs> editing, perhaps. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think that we perhaps do not a very good job of um, emphasising the important role that genetic improvement does play in this. And I look at, um, you know, for example, the production of, of, of dairy products in the US over time and looking back in, in the 1940s relative you know, a cow had about a quarter of the output that she has now. And if I look at what's happened since the introduction actually of AI, artificial insemination back in the 40s, um, what's happened is the cattle population has declined quite a lot from 26 million to about 9 million today. But production um, from those much lesser herd is well over almost two times what it was back in the 1940s. And so put that all together and the carbon footprint associated with a glass of milk is about a third of what it was in 1944. And um, I think that what often happens in this in these discussions around um, the sustainability of, of animal product production is that groups that are trying to demonize it will, will use the either global average figures or very, very um, bad figures or very high figures without acknowledging the fact that there are systems that are very efficient um, and particularly uh, milk and eggs um, are almost at a, an equivalence with what it takes to produce the same protein um, using um, other systems and, and certainly uh, use a lot less energy than what's proposed for these um, 
cultured meats. And so I think that the important role that genetics plays in, in reducing the environmental footprint of our food production systems is, is kind of, we really need to emphasize that. And I'm, I'm probably preaching a bit converted here, but even a, um, you know, a kilogram of beef carbon footprint relative to what it was you know, 50 years ago is dramatically reduced as a result of improved um, efficiency of our, of our beef production systems. And I'll give a little credit to the veterinarians and the feed people, I guess, but, you know, mostly it's <laughs> genetics. 50-50 <laughs> probably. It is about 50-50. <laughs> in, in, in poultry, however, it's about 80%. Genetics. Um, so yeah, yeah, if you look at those uh, the bird bird selection, because they they have you know they've they've got a nice they've got an integrated system that allows them to really um, capitalize uh, more efficiently on the genetics than some of our more pastoral systems. It's just the, the structure of the industry makes it a little easier to do genetic improvement in those vertically integrated industries. Do you also think there's some truth truths that need to be still uncovered as to um, how agriculture is playing a role in environment um, I'm, I'm concerned that you know comparing um, some of the greenhouse emissions that come out of agriculture to burning burning a 300 million year old fossil fuel is quite different and what have we got that right yeah, I mean, I think you're talking about the kind of the short-term nature of methane versus the long-term nature of carbon dioxide emissions. And yeah. I think, you know, more generally, the, the big elephant in the room is, is the burning of fossil fuels. Um, and if you look at the proportion of, of the greenhouse gases that, that that's responsible for, it's, it's by far the biggest proportion. Um, and I, I know, for example, in the US, I think, Agriculture is 10% and energy burning is 75% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And so I know uh, there's a paper, if you got rid of all animal agriculture in the United States, it would reduce the greenhouse gas by about 2.6%. Um, not nothing, but I think sometimes it's, it's pushed as, well, this is the biggest single thing you can do for your, your carbon footprint. And I think actually it's the fossil fuel burning that is where the biggest uh, metric is and not that you can't work on them consecutively but I think of also course, the, yeah, the short-term nature of the of the uh, methane exists in the atmosphere for about 10 years before it breaks down uh, versus co2 is up there for thousands of years and so there's a there's a cycle of, of carbon that God, I learned about this in agricultural science 30 years ago you know there's the nitrogen the water cycle the nitrogen cycle and, and the carbon cycle um, that's part of kind of the biogenic um, just the that goes around it goes into you know gets captured through photosynthesis and then consumed by uh, animals that eat that plant and then it kind of um, goes back goes around as distinct from what's happening with the the fossil fuel burning is you're digging up well effectively old dead animals from, from many many minutes yeah. ago and burning that new carbon and it's going into the atmosphere for you know, a long time and so there there's a there's a difference between those two in terms of um, whether you're contributing I guess new carbon for want of a better expression um, to the atmosphere relative to um, just the the systems of, of um, biogenic um, carbon Alison, thank you. We've got to. Um, I've got to ask you the difficult questions now. The um, <laughs> we've got the the three M's of the Raw Egg podcast, which are the mistakes of the masterpieces and the mentor, your mentors. What are the mistakes you've made? Yeah, it's a hard one to answer. I mean, God, what isn't a mistake? But I think uh, certainly I moved to the US from Melbourne 
a long time ago when I was quite young and, and uh, didn't do the code switch very well <laughs> in terms of um, appreciating the, the nuances in terms of the culture and, and how to do science communication. And so I made some pretty spectacular blunders uh, in terms of uh, what's acceptable humour and um, <laughs> communication style in, in Australia um, and, and transported that to the Midwest. And have you, you've been, a, you've been a bit ironic from time to time, have you? Oh, I got, it, I got into a little bit of trouble here and there, I guess I'll put it <laughs> that way. <laughs> so I've, I've certainly learnt to read my audience and, uh, and I think that's an important science communication skill is you need to speak in the language and in the way that, that you're not going to turn your audience off. And uh, I, didn't, I did not code switch very well at the beginning there, but I've, I've learnt through trial and error to, to, to do that better. <laughs> to stop the arms folding in the audience in front of you. Perhaps. Yeah, or yeah, the heads shaking. <laughs> that's always a bad sign. So I had some good colleagues that helped coach me through some of that. Some some of them are just hidden cultural things that you don't even appreciate, you know, because, I I mean, when I was in Australia, I I wouldn't have known, you know, the south from the north of America. They're all just Yankees to me. And so, you know, there's a very distinct culture with every single one of the 50 states here. And there are some jokes that I can say in California that I would not say in the Midwest. And there are some I'd say in Australia that I wouldn't think of bringing up over the equator. So... Uh, I think you just that that was a learning experience. So after being involved in over, what over seven hundred presentations, um, <laughs> masterpieces are, must be plentiful. Um, yeah, I guess you know where where have you been successful? As I guess to me, it's always if I feel like the audience is actually going to implement something that you talk about or it's actually useful to what you're yeah. doing. I think perhaps for me professionally, one of the, the most satisfying events was I did a, 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 a Oxford-style debate in New York City on GMOs, uh, and that was basically in a theatre full of uh, urban New York um, liberals. <laughs> I thought it was a bit of a fool's mission to go in there, and obviously I was on the side of supporting technology of GMOs. and. Uh, we actually did an hour and a half and we ended up um, basically taking people who were undecided about the technology, the, about 40%, to agreeing that actually this technology could be used for uh, useful, beneficial purposes. And I, I did not think that that would be the outcome of that event. So I, I'll take that as a, a professional uh, a masterpiece, I guess, just because it was so unexpected that um, science, that people would listen to the science <laughs> and actually yep. change their mind. <laughs> Well, once once they hear it, it's quite compelling, isn't it? It's just whether they well, hear it or not. I think it, what was the beauty of that event was we were there was two and two, so two for, two against, all scientists and a really good moderator and people were basically locked in a room for an hour and a half and they couldn't leave. And so we had them. Um, and I think when you hear the whole thing laid out like that, it, it's it's hard to be against disease-resistant plants and animals. It's just, it's like why <laughs> um and that really i think was yeah a really um exciting event and uh mentors alison who's been an influence in your life yeah i mean i guess any uh academic with a with a academic pedigree um i think you know the, the master advisor or your major professor is a term here that uh you you happen upon uh, is a really key figure. And so mine was a professor, Dr. Juan Medrano, who um, was a brand new professor when I did an exchange year at Davis. And uh, he had recently immigrated from Guatemala and 
he has um, been my my guide and my mentor both academically and uh, professionally for well, 35 years now. Um, and just a solid uh, scientist, a decent individual and, and a very uh, good life coach. And so I, I owe, owe a lot to him. But I've also had some terrific Australian mentors. I think, you know, there's been some maybe scientists that are a little bit older than me or more experienced than me, I guess, um, males who have really helped my career and, um, you know, females in, in agricultural science. It's, it's, you know, it's still a little bit of a tough road. And so there's been some um, established professors like Mike Goddard and Brian Kinghorn who have really welcomed me and um, encouraged me through my career. And I think I give them a lot of uh, credit for um, being uh, open and welcoming to someone you know a little bit outside the traditional uh, academic path that uh, most people take. I've had a bit of a, a bit of a curvy career to get to where I'm at, so um, I think I've had some terrific help from from those colleagues. Thank you very much for talking on the Raw Ag podcast today. It's been a pleasure having you on, and um, you've made such a wonderful contribution to uh, genetics beef genetics and, and uh, genetics in general and thank you very much Alison. Thanks Tom. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.